0: share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history, and how food connects and
1: defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey,
0: Kim. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. The days are getting longer. The sun seems to feel a little bit warmer. I actually enjoyed working out on the porch last couple of afternoons. The puppy seems to think that I need to play with her when I'm out there. It's all good. I throw the ball. I type a little. I throw the ball some more.
1: <laughs> I am spending my time. I don't have anything fun to say about how I'm keeping myself these days. Hmm. Um, it's not bad. It's just busy. Busy is good sometimes, too. I'm one of those people that likes to be busy, frankly. I did have fun this weekend for Pi Day. I created the apple cream pie that debuted on PostSecret a couple of months ago. It was interesting to make. I totally misread the recipe. So I, for the second time, misread the recipe. I was going to say, I thought you told me this yeah. once before. This is my second fail. S- semi, <laughs> this one was more of a semi-fail. The first was an absolute fail. This was a semi-fail. So maybe the third time I make the pie, it charm. will actually be a success. And this time I overlooked the fact that you're supposed to bake it in a deep dish pie crust, not a deep dish pie dish. <laughs> so I basically made the filling.
0: It was <laughs> gluten free.
1: It. it was completely not gluten free because it has oh. two tablespoons of flour in it. Darn. It's tasty, though. It's a tasty dish. It's apple pie. It wasn't anything shocking. I think the big difference was that it was a grated apple, not sliced apple. Oh, interesting! So, what is Post Secret? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Post Secret is a website and 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 a community that has grown up to surround it, it started by Frank Warren, but it is a site or a project where people can mail in their secrets and Frank posts them, and he does that kind of in the theme of a. Commonality showing that there's really no secret that's too shocking or too personal or too, that we all have stuff in common. And this particular secret was somebody sent in her family's secret recipe. She believed that in honor of her grandmother, she didn't think that her aunt should have the right to keep it secret and hidden. And she sent it in so that everyone could have it. So there's that act of the sharing the recipe that is pretty bold and pretty interesting. And even if the apple pie itself may not be that spectacularly unique, the act of sharing a secret family recipe, that is really what's notable about this. This woman who sent it in was very fond of her grandmother. I'm assuming it's a woman, might be a man. And they wanted to honor their person by sharing the recipe. Last week, we talked about Neruz. A lot of the conversations
0: that we had were around those heritage recipes being passed down. It was such a tradition for these recipes to be handed down and to become part of the celebration of Neruz, which is the Persian New Year. And this week, we're going to be sharing what we've learned about another spring celebration that really does have a lot of heritage behind it and a lot of tradition behind it. This one also celebrates new beginnings, but the celebration is about the beginning of a new nation. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners know exactly what we're talking about. But those of you who don't and who are still wondering what is this spring holiday about a new nation? We're talking about Passover. And essentially Passover is the celebration and commemoration of the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. When I was researching Passover, I came across this passage from Exodus 12. And it's, it's condensed a little bit. It's not the whole passage, but it makes some commandments related to Passover. And it goes something like this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then God further describes how you're supposed to choose the lamb and that if you have a neighbor who, doesn't have a family that's big enough to consume an entire lamb that you're supposed to share your lamb with them. And then he goes on to say that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. And it had to be roasted along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Part of Passover was that literally God was passing over the kingdom of Egypt. And if you had sacrificed the lamb and you had painted the doorframe of your home and you had followed these commandments, then the Lord would spare your firstborn. Otherwise, the firstborn of everybody and everything was killed. So the Lord passed over that night, he killed the Pharaoh's firstborn, he killed the firstborn of the livestock, he killed the firstborn of even the prisoners. So no one was saved from this unless, of course, you had followed the commandments that he had put down. The other thing that was really interesting to me about this commandment to celebrate the Passover was that there were specific directives on what was eaten and how it had to be eaten. Mm -hmm. And there was lamb, there was bitter herbs, there was unleavened bread. And all of these still play a really significant role in the rituals of Passover. And much like the half-seen table of our Nauru's episode that aired last week, Passover has a table that's very central to the rituals that are observed during this event. One of the things that I found that was super beautiful about this table is that in Hebrew, the word for table is shulchan. And it means a place of kindness or a place of grace. Isn't that beautiful?
1: That is so beautiful. It
0: is. I just, it just made my heart happy. <laughs> right? In an article on the International Fellowship of Christian and Jews website, they explained the Passover table as a place where we share our story as a people. And these foods help us to do this. We speak and listen, and we're nourished body and soul. And although this is specifically about the Seder table— I have to say that this really speaks to the purpose of our podcast. Absolutely. We want to bring people to our table of grace and kindness to share our stories. And by our stories, I mean, our stories. I mean, as the greater community and nourish each other by speaking and really,
1: really listening. And I just it just again, it just made my heart so happy when I read this. That's the first thing I thought, too, is that, oh, that speaks to our purpose and everything that you and I hold dear, that a lot of people hold dear, that sense of family, of community, that the table represents that heart of the house where everyone gathers together and has a place figuratively and literally. Exactly. Exactly. So speaking of tables, I know that you did some research on the Seder table, and I want to know what you found out. So I am so excited to talk about the Seder table. And I have to say that researching this episode took me right back to childhood days that I spent in Santa Monica, California. I was an elementary school student at Franklin Elementary and a huge percentage of my school was Jewish, is Jewish. I'm assuming most of them are still Jewish. (laughs) And so we actually learned a great deal about the holiday in the classroom. And these are fond memories for me. As I mentioned before, my best friend, Rebecca Schneider. I learned a lot from her and from her family. It it was really nice to revisit those memories in addition to actually learning a lot more that I didn't learn back when I was a kid. My favorite part about Passover is Seder. Um, And Passover is actually like an extended holiday. It's seven days long. Seder is a very specific moment within Passover. I particularly am fond of the Seder plate because it is full of tradition and history and symbolism in a way that I find it's really special and unique, and yet reminds me of neruz and other holidays spent gathered around the family table. So I'm going to talk about the Seder plate, its arrangement, and basically its role in the overall Seder ritual. Seder, which is a Hebrew word for order, actually, Itself is a very special ritual where the family gathers together at the family table. And again, this is not unlike Neruz or Easter to specifically retell the story of the exodus of Israelites from Egypt. And part of this ritual retelling specifically involves a Seder plate that contains six items that each have a significance in the retelling of the story. This is very alike. The half table is part of Nuru's. The Seder table and the Seder plate may have been influenced by the half table by the arrangement of symbolic items, but items on the Seder plate have completely different and very specific meanings and roles within the ritual. There is virtually no similarity between the seven S's on the half table and the six items on the Seder plate. So the first part of the Seder ritual and the Seder meal is that three whole matzahs are placed on a table and covered. And then on the Seder plate itself are arranged the following items. Zoroa is represented by a roasted chicken neck or a shank bone. And this symbolizes the Paschal lamb, which would have been the roasted lamb sacrifice made at the Temple of Jerusalem, which is roasted and eaten by the family exactly as you described it. Since the Temple of Jerusalem no longer exists, that part of the tradition cannot be fulfilled. So the chicken neck or the shank bone, has become a stand-in for that sacrificial lamb. And I found that really intriguing that this sort of the symbol of the lamb is also symbolic, too, because it's not meant to be eaten or touched during Seder. It's something unto itself. And this is also really in contrast to things that we've talked about before, where people are eating food that allows them to take on the qualities of mm. the, the things that they're eating. Next on the plate is beza and this is a roasted hard-boiled egg symbolizing a festival sacrifice that would have been offered at the Temple of Jerusalem. And where we've talked extensively before about the egg symbolizing new life or fertility, in this context, the egg represents mourning for the lost temple. It's the first thing that mourners eat after the funeral. It is not that joyous fertility new life concept. As I said, it's actually one of sorrow. And we're going to come back to that because it has a very specific moment in the Seder meal. Also on the plate are bitter herbs called maror. This symbolizes the bitterness of slavery. Ashkenazi tradition uses romaine, endive, or grated horseradish to fulfill this particular mitzvah. There's also a sweet, dense mixture of chopped nuts, grated apples, cinnamon, and sweet red wine that's mixed together to represent haraset, and this mixture particularly resembles the mortar that the slaves were made to use by the pharaoh in order to build buildings. Next is carpus, and that is a fresh green herb or vegetable, typically parsley, but in some traditions actually it could be green onion or potato. Hmm. And that is dipped into salt water, which is then shaken off. The salt water represents tears and and sadness. There are more bitter herbs on the plate called hazaret, and that might be onion or romaine as well. And that is meant to be eaten with paresh or halal sandwich. And I will get to that as well. And there's a lot of wine. There are at least four <laughs> cups of wine is going to be drunk per, during seder per person. Per person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, so every yes, every for every person you have at the seder table. And you should have many because your family is meant to be together. There's wine, but it's not all drunk at once. There are specific moments in the meal where you are meant to drink the wine. The three matzah are a very symbolic item used during Seder and they're not necessarily part of the plate, but they are part of the the meal. And basically, it's an unleavened bread made from wheat, barley, oats, rye, or spelt, and water only. This is a very specific requirement. What I remember learning about matzah was that during the Exodus, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they carried dough on their backs, and that was baked dry and flat in the heavy sun. Matzah is an incredibly special component for Seder, and it it's. Called many things. It's called bread of affliction or poverty because it mirrors what the slaves were given to eat. It's called the bread of humility because it is a very humble food. It's also known as the bread of faith and the bread of healing. So this, this one component carries so much ritual and importance to the people eating it. It's a very basic Matza Doesn't have a lot of flavor. It's definitely got a very particular texture, and yet it means so much. Mm to so many people so the seder ritual traditionally begins with a blessing over wine this is known as the kaddish it's traditional to have someone else fill your cup with wine and that everyone says the sanctifying prayer together at other times of the year one person would say Kiddush for everyone present Mm -hmm. this is the time when it's a communal activity a moment of like just sheer unity i think that's beautiful The next step is that you wash your hands. There's usually a special pitcher and bowl for this. So you wash your right hand first twice, you wash your left hand twice, and then you dry them. The next thing to be eaten at Seder after the blessing is the carpus. And again, this is that fresh herb dipped in salt water. Carpus symbolizes hope and renewal, and the salt water symbolizes sorrow and tears. And to me, the duality here is really intriguing because it recognizes that you really can't have one without the other. Right. And this is very much like Neruz as well with Mm. the duality of light and dark and new and ancient. And there's also something really elemental about flavor here too. You can imagine that contrast between something with a bright green flavor and salt, and that the flavors are complementary in their contrast, that we expect yes. these things to go together. And there are some variations on the salt water. I read that sometimes vinegar is substituted by German and Persian Jews. And given that what we know about vinegar from Neruz, that mm-hmm. it represents age and patience, you can imagine that contrast of. Fresh herbs springing out of the winter ground and that growing really fast. I think anyone who's ever planted herbs, especially in the spring, knows what I'm talking about, where there's just an explosion of color and plant matter. Contrasted with aged vinegar that you could imagine being kept on a shelf in a warm kitchen over a long period of time. So you've got these images of light and dark and new and old that are inseparable. You dip into the salt water and you evoke all this in one moment and in one step. The next stage is that the middle matzah of your stack of three matzah is broken in half. And the smaller piece stays with the other wrapped matzah. The larger piece is broken again into five pieces and wrapped in cloth and hidden. These five pieces represent the the five contractions of light that created the world. And again, we, we have that sort of concept of light and dark happening. The Mons is also broken because it represented how the slaves would have eaten. They wouldn't have eaten everything at once. You save a little bit for later, just in case. In many ways, this makes this story and this tradition very real and a very living piece of history because you are acting and reenacting things that your ancestors and your people would have done thousands of years before, that you're bringing it into this kind of current world, current life. And so this is the point where the folks at the table will start the retelling of Exodus. And this is done, folks have books, they, it's not a solemn affair. Even though the bits of the Seder plate often have somewhat of a sadness or a mournfulness associated with the items themselves, the retelling of the Exodus story is not a sad, dark one. It's told and retold with skits and songs and moments of introspection and reflection and conversation and discussion it's not just this thing that you have to get through. You are living the story as you are retelling it. And it, it is, there's a lot of it is sad. Slavery is not a good, comfortable thing. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. And that is the focus of Passover and particularly of Seder. So the retelling of the story of Exodus has a strong duality, as we've been talking about, strife leading to freedom. This is the moment for reflection on the story and how it resonates with life, how we continue to live parts of these stories even today. And this is where your second glass of wine is drunk. I forgot mine. I have to go get it. No, me too. Like, (laughs) like, wait a minute, where'd my second glass of wine go? (laughs) At this point in the evening, you wash your hands again again, twice on the right and twice on the left. So this is sort of like a coming clean. And I love the symbolic washing clean, that idea that wherever you are, and whatever you've been doing, you can refresh yourself. There's this moment in this ritual that acknowledges this form of rebirth, this cleansing, right. this moment of renewal, Yeah, that it's an integral part It's not just something you do because you've got something sticky on your hands. It's part of the story that you're enacting this washing clean of the bad parts of their history and that you're preparing yourself for the next stage. So something as simple as this like washing ritual. It just imbues this whole tradition with a life and a purpose that I think is just really beautiful. It's it's intentionality that really strikes me that this is the moment we've retold the story of our exodus we're coming clean and we're, we're going to proceed ahead. It's really interesting, even
0: talking about Nuru's, how important water is in both of these yes. celebrations and both of these rituals. And even in spring, that's when you get the spring rains and they, they bring that new life. So at
1: this point in the Seder dinner, uh, a blessing is said over all three pieces of the remaining matzah. And I just I really do love the way that matzah is like a star of the dinner. Mm -hmm. The bottom piece of matzah is returned to the table and the middle piece and the top piece are broken and shared with everyone at the table. Now, what's important is the marriage of the blessing and the matzah. So matzah needs to be whole in order to receive the blessing. You would not say a blessing over a broken piece of matzah. And I like the idea that the matzah, in all its dryness, actually (laughs) soaks up the blessing and that you are using that as a way to bring that blessing into your body. And this is not unlike the bread that we would eat at um, communion.
0: Yes, that's true. Okay. (laughs) That is true. But I do have to say that in this article called don't eat off the seder plate and other tips for non-jews attending the first seder the first thing he said was do not compare matzah to the communion bread
1: (laughs) i'm so sorry i don't mean to do that i just to yeah remember i'm the heathen to be clear i am in no way insinuating that matzah is akin to the body of christ I, I am well aware that there are vast differences between those concepts. I I'm, do not mean to conflate them by a long <laughs> shot. I'm thinking of food as a vessel for a blessing. At this moment, we've eaten the middle and the top matzahs. Mm-hmm. We have one whole beautiful, perfect matza left on the table. So at this moment, the maror, bitter herbs, are actually dipped into the haraset, which is that sweet mixture that resembles mortars. And the goal is to taste the bitterness, not to obfuscate it at all, but that you mix it with a little sweet. And again, this is symbolic of life, right? You're going to have your bitter moments, and hopefully you can temper them with some sweetness. Or conversely, you're going to have your sweet moments that might have a little tinge of bitterness to them. You cannot have one without the other. After that point, we next break the remaining matzah into two pieces. You place the hazaret, which is the other bitter herb, between them, dip it into the haraset, and eat. That's the halal sandwich. And then finally, before the rest of the festive holiday meal begins, the roasted egg is dipped into the salt water and eaten. And again, the roasted egg is a symbol of a festive sacrifice, but it's also a symbol of mourning for what was lost. And this includes on a greater scale, the loss of the Temple of Jerusalem, but on a personal level, it could be a moment of mourning, of acknowledging loss that happens through the year.
0: Or even the loss of the previous year. I read where the egg was also symbolic of the circle of life. You're mourning what was lost, but there's also this movement forward in that circle of life.
1: That's true. I did like the fact that the egg wasn't this all perfect, wonderful fertility, new life symbol, that there was recognition that life is cyclical. I liked that the egg had a gravitas, a shadow side to it, if you will. Yeah. Now you have your feast, your festive holiday meal. The seder plate is set aside and you eat well. You feast until you're full. And then comes the afikomen. You hunt for the five pieces of matzah that you had set aside earlier. This is akin to five pieces of light in the creation of light. You're meant to be satisfied by the food that you've eaten at the table. This is the finale that you're inviting in a life force into your body so that it's beyond nourishment. I just like the idea that you're inviting light into your body. I just thought that was really cool. I did encounter a modern addition to the Seder plate, which is an orange. And the orange represents the fruitfulness of all Jews, especially when those who are traditionally in the margins, women and people who are gay or lesbian, are allowed to be active within the Jewish community. That there's a wholeness and fruitfulness to the community when everyone is included. And this idea originates from Susanna Heschel, who is a scholar and the Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth. She started this custom in the early 1980s in response to feminist critique that women were not given enough of a role and presence in the Jewish community.
0: I also found another more modern edition, and this is Miriam's Cup, and it's to honor women. And this, yeah, it celebrates Miriam's role in the deliverance of the Israelites and Miriam was Elijah's wife. And it took me back to our Purim episode when I was talking about the three qualities that Esther had typically related to the patriarchs of the the lineage. But I spun that a little bit. And I wasn't trying to be sacrilegious in any way. But I did want to point out that women are very important in these stories. And I think that they're often forgotten. I really loved that inclusion of Miriam's Cup. Mm -hmm. So this was from reformed Judaism. So obviously, like you said, very modern, probably non traditional, but I did love the thought of honoring the women that were part of this story, because they were a significant part of the story.
1: And it speaks to the idea that this tradition is a living tradition, that it is intentionally meant to make sure that this Jewish history is not forgotten, that it's not made dusty and archaic and something that happened in the distant past, that it's actually part of everyday life, that we have these moments Mm. of trial and tribulation, but ones that ultimately lead to freedom and liberation. Right. So by being additive to the story, to truly encompass every member of the community, to acknowledge that every member has a role and a function, I think is is really important. I
0: agree. So you talked about the afakomen, which was the three pieces of matzah that were hidden. It really reminded me, again, of our Mardi Gras episode yes. and king cake and potato with a kolkanen. And the kids search for this and whoever finds it receives a prize it's just been so fascinating for me as we're going through each of these holidays and talking about different ingredients and different foods how so much of this is so interconnected and it mm-hmm. just really provides so much validation to the point that we really are so much more alike than we really are different and i just i love that part of
1: it yeah. one of the things i love about the Seder plate and the the Seder tradition is that food is used for storytelling. Yes. We have these symbols and, and some of them are universal and some of them are not, but that it becomes a communicative tool that so much is communicated in having a roasted egg on a plate mm. that it seeps into the history or the history seeps into the object and that it, it becomes part of the story that you can't tell the story without having right. this food around. There's no substitute. You can just put a picture of an egg on the table and call it good. You know that you have to have the egg. You have to have the herbs. You have to have the salt water or the vinegar. You have to have the shank bone, even if you're never going to eat it or use it or touch it. The sweet haraset. Yeah. All of that is integral.
0: So I have a, this isn't a a Kim morbid food fact. (gasps) No. Macabre. It's macabre. not a Kim Macabre uh, food fact, but it is a fun food fact. Okay. About the Haggadah. We haven't really talked much about the Haggadah, but it is a very important part of Passover. Yes. And it is literally a text that includes the story of the Exodus. It has prayers in it and it has some commentary in it. And most of the Haggadahs that are used today have been published by Maxwell Coffee Company. Really? Really? Yes. So back in the 20s, Maxwell House Coffee was perplexed by the fact that there had this reduction in sales during Passover. And what they discovered is that because they had the word bean on the can, it was confused with the hummets, which are the restricted foods that you cannot eat during Passover. And that includes anything that might sprout or ferment what scholars think is that because when water is added to beans and they swell that there's this perception of leavening so you couldn't have beans interesting yeah so because that word was on the can there was this confusion and stores actually wouldn't sell coffee during passover So Maxwell House Coffee reached out to Joseph Jacobs, who was the head of an agency that specialized in marketing to Jewish communities. And he enlisted a rabbi to certify that coffee was fine to consume because even though it's called a bean, it's actually just the pit of Mm. the Mm -hmm. coffee cherry. So it's the pit of a fruit. And then in 1932, the company went even further to start publishing a Passover Haggadah you would get the Haggadah with your can of coffee. Oh, wow. And since 1932, and the most recent information that I could find was 2018, since 1932 to 2018, over 55 million Passover Haggadah have been published.
1: Wow. Right? That's so cool. It's so cool. So all this talk about egg has reminded me that we are going to be talking about the glorious egg next time.
0: And speaking of marketing, the poor egg really did have to have a huge marketing campaign around it just to get it back into our
1: refrigerators. I'm going to toddle off and make an omelet. Oh, I think I'm going to do toad in the hole. I
0: love toad in the hole. We call it eggy toast. Oh, that's a good name for it too. But toad Mm. in the hole just
1: kind of sounds like mr toad's adventure i remember the first time my dad made me toad in the hole i still remember it he had put the little cutout piece on top of the egg yolk and he told me not to peek ba, ba, da, oh, da, it was so cute for more information da, da, about today's episode check out our website at asweeat.com follow us on instagram at asweeat, eat and join our new as we eat community on facebook
0: And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please.
1: And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates.
0: Oh, and one more thing, we also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it.
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.